Hello and welcome to episode 27 of Coffee and Circuses. This week I'm joined by Caroline Lawrence, author of the Roman Mysteries book series. Caroline has recently released a new book, The Time Travel Diaries, in which a kid from modern London goes back in time to Roman Londinium via a portal set up in the most magical place on earth, the London Mithraeum. So, for this episode, rather than record in the studio, we decided to record in the most magical place on earth, the London Mithraeum. Caroline talks about her new book, how she came to write historical novels, and if she could travel back in time, where she'd go and who she'd meet. We also discuss some of the most important things in life, such as Marvel, Star Wars, Star Trek, Game of Thrones, and Buffy the Vampire Slayer, which Caroline actually appeared in several episodes of as an extra. So why all the nerdiness, you ask? Well, aside from the fact that I am a massive nerd, as Caroline observes, much like Tyrion did in the last episode of Game of Thrones, the one thing people always love is a good story. So, thanks for joining me, and on to the show. Oh, and if you get the chance, make sure you go visit the most magical place on Earth, the London Mithraeum. But yeah, so, so here we are. In yeah, the, here we are in the Mithraeum. In the Mithraeum. Well, the upstairs bit of the Mithraeum in the gallery. Facing yeah. the wall of 600 artifacts. Yeah, yeah. Including the famous Bloomberg tablets and the little I, the little amber gladiator helmet amulet yeah. is in there. Do you have Do you have a particular favorite find? Um, probably the little gladiator um, amber amulet because it's so tiny. I go, see if you can find the amber helmet and no one ever can there it is <laughs> but i think also the londinio tablet the tablet with the first mention of the name of london yeah and um Mogantius. and i like the keys because they look so different and my one of my um my obsession essentially is i want to go back to ancient times and know what it was really like and so i'm obsessed with what i call the 10 percent surprise which is if you could go back to ancient time and expert, say ancient, say third century London, there'd be 10% where you'd go, oh my gosh, I never thought that would be like that. And that's what I'm trying to figure out. Um, and I think one of the things that we forget is how much they thought it was a world full of gods and how much, how many things were apotropaic to keep away evil and to protect themselves. And so I'm convinced that like 50% of those objects have a secondary um, function, which is to keep away evil or to bring good luck. Mm -hmm. Like there are little rings there, which might have grapes of Dionysus, and Dionysus is, uh, you know, a protective god, a psychopomp. Um, I think often the keys are amuletic, the little key rings. I don't think they could open anything if you really look at them. And keys are often associated with women's wombs, with locking and unlocking the womb okay. to keep in a pregnancy and stuff. So that's one of my obsessions. Okay. And I love looking at them and thinking, how is that apotropaic? How does that keep away evil? I have a extended in, uh, extended essay student that I've been supervising who's been doing her extended essay on uh, gender and magic in uh-huh, the Roman uh-huh, world. So uh-huh. looking at references to particular objects and in the text as well yeah. how like particular basically witches is essentially yeah, the, yeah. the the um, focus yeah. of the essay it's a really it's a really interesting topic though that's yeah well i've worked some magic into the my new time travels book yes. which um which uh, you haven't got to that bit yet because it's near the end but it's revealed that one of the girls is actually doing some magic 
Ah, and that's okay. something until, spoiler alert. <laughs> until I saw the uh, Roman Dead exhibition put on by the Museum of London down in Docklands. Oh, that's fantastic! I didn't realize how much the Romans were into this magic, and I think it was it Adam Parker, yeah, who said a, a really good definition of magic is when you don't just pray to gods to protect you, but you're manipulating. The, mm. the spirits and the forces. That's a really good definition. Yeah. You're not just saying, please bless me, protect me. It's like, okay, I'm doing this, and you're going to have to, you know, curse that person or do something yeah. to them. Or, a bit more agency for the people. A bit more agency. So mm. that was a revelation to me. So what's your favorite uh, artifact um, in the case? They haven't got it here, but there's a really cool coin of Nero that was that found on the site. Found. <laughs> that <I've, laughs> that'll always be my favorite. Um, Isn't that amazing that you can look at a coin of Nero or Vespasian or Titus or Domitian and you would recognize them immediately? Yeah. They come I, out of the dirt. I mean, I, I've never had one out of the dirt, but you can recognize them yeah. so easily. Can and Nero's uh, particularly podgy face yeah, as well. Yeah, little chubby, like, chubby, oh, was, double chin. Just, yeah. That, a gold coin, too. Yeah, yeah, it was fantastic. Wow. don't think I'll ever top that. Maybe, Why hopefully. Is it not? The case. I'm not sure. They do have some coins at the top, but I don't think it. I don't think it is in there. And I love the um, the oak and the leather that that's preserved. Oh yeah, you know, that's that's fantastic. The shoes and things like that. Yeah, yeah. So yeah. So you've got your new book that's come out, yeah. which is partially based on the myth. Well, the Mithraeum in terms of using it as a, as yes. a time machine. And one of one of the things that inspired me was when you go down those black marble stairs to the mezzanine they have levels that tell you you're going down back in time, essentially, mm. because the actual level of 3rd century Londinium is 7 meters below where we're sitting now, 30 feet in American terms. Um, so if you went through a portal to 3rd century London and put the portal here, you'd fall 30 feet and break both legs. Yeah. <laughs> so my idea was you have to put a portal to the top past not just longitudinally and latitudinally, but altitudinally, by altitude. And um, I try to take all the little fun facts that I learned about ancient, the ancient world and make them intrinsic to the plot so it's exciting for kids, so kids will remember that kind of thing. Because yeah. you know? my books are essentially didactic, teaching me, really, first and then the kids. Because yeah. you are saying, because you used to be a teacher as well. Yeah, I used to be a teacher, but the most important thing is I have an 11-year-old mentality myself. Mm -hmm which means I'm not a very good academic because I'm not good with abstract concepts. But I love the materiality of ancient worlds, you know. Yeah. Um, someone once said about Colette that she wrote about the tangible, tasteable, smellable, hearable world. And that's what I want to do with ancient Rome and Londinium and Athens and stuff. Yeah. It's kind of the next best thing to a time machine, essentially. Yeah. So that's why I love... Stuff like sensory archaeology and archaeology and um, the primary sources and all that stuff. Yeah. And then putting all that together with your imagination, which is, I'm allowed to do. You guys aren't allowed to do that so much. You haven't been in the past, although it's yeah. changing a bit. I think. Yeah, I mean, it's interesting you, what you're just saying, because about, you're saying, you know, so much... You can see it's still so much academic, but you have got recently involved in things like there was a workshop in London, which was about yeah. the census in the past. Yeah, but I like brought oil and fish yeah. sauce and stuff and um, and bells and stuff for people to smell and mastic gum, mastica, because mm. the Greeks invented chewing gum, or rather it's this resin that grows on the island of Chios, and we get the word masticate from it. And have you ever tried it? Uh, I have not, actually, no. And it tastes like nothing you've ever tasted. Oh, really? 
it's a completely new taste, and it's the taste of ancient Rome. And so, I that's mean, that's a great marketing line as well. Stuff like that is amazing. And so, I brought. You can actually buy masticha. It's like sugar coated here, but you can get the, the taste afterwards. So, I brought masticha for everybody to try. So, although it was an academic conference, I was telling them how I use my obsessions and the, the five senses to try to bring the world alive. Because mm. kids like the concrete world too, I think. Kids under, before the age of puberty, like concrete things. I think we all like concrete things. So yeah, I have so much fun doing stuff like that. Yeah. Having a few weeks ago, having Giacomo on the podcast, yeah. where he was talking about uh, you know, the creative side yeah. of or academia, or yeah. academia becoming more creative, yeah. um, because he's written a chapter in this book about that's coming out about essentially that. And his chapter was on writing short stories, yeah. going to the ancient world, and I guess I guess there perhaps is a, a move now because I know we do things in terms of assessment, which are creative assignments, creative writing assignments. I did one. Oh, you did the tweeting Twitter Rome, one, yeah, you know, the tweeting Roman Britain, which yeah. Was, yeah, that, that was interesting. But yeah, I think. Because I, I had to do that as part of a project. Yeah. And I got the feedback from the students. So many of them just said, I liked it because it wasn't an essay. Like yeah. They were just doing yeah. something different. Yeah. And, and some of them did like it because of the fact that it put them into the shoes of somebody at the time. Yeah. And it gave them a different perspective rather than looking at everything in the ancient world from a third-person perspective, actually yeah. having to take the first person. They were like, oh, wow. Well. No, no, that's, that's, I think that's great. And I think, I think more archaeologists should actually... Um, use their imaginations. And I think the thing is, I think they do it already, but they don't allow themselves to kind of um, to acknowledge that they've done that. And a few years ago, Valerie Higgins, um, who's um, an Andante tour and also at the American University of Rome, invited me to come out. And it's essentially, it was, um, she invited me to come out and do some writing workshops with their archaeology students so that they could get out the creativity in a kind of another way of what the site they're working on. And I think it'd be great if they didn't have to, um, ha if we didn't have a dichotomy between the scholarly and the creative. Yeah. Um, but of course, when you blur the line, it gets difficult, doesn't it? Yeah. But I mean, one of the great things about being writing historical fiction is you can do whatever you want, essentially, and there's nobody telling you you can't do it. Yeah. How did you how did you come to the idea of the recent book then of using the, the Mithraim? Was Mithras something that you'd actually heard that much about before, or was it was it one of those things where you saw the Mithraim open? You were like, oh, that's an interesting idea. Exactly, yeah. I mean, I'd heard of Mithras as being because I my first series of books, the Roman Mysteries, are set in Ostia, mm. and of course, Mithraim are Mithraea are all over Ostia, but my books are set in. Um, the period of Titus, about 79 to 81 AD. And I don't think the Mithraea were quite going then, no. although recent scholarship suggests they might, but mm. I thought they were mainly 2nd century, so I thought, oh, it's too bad I can't use them. They're later than my period. But um, that's when I first became aware of them. And, of course, that their competition of Christianity, or that they arose at the same time. Yeah. Um, that was fascinating. Um, but one of the things I do is I write in the morning and then in the afternoon I try to go out and fill up my creative well by either going to a movie or going to a free music concert or walking in the park or going to museums and I go to museums a lot I'm like the British Museum is my home away from home but when I heard they were opening this I thought oh this sounds amazing so I came almost immediately because um, I even went to see the Mithraeum when it was on it, out on the sidewalk oh, in Queen Victoria yeah. it was so disappointing 
just a bit of concrete out in the middle of London. And this was so extraordinary um, that I came back and back. And um, I think I got the idea from some bones that were on um, display at the Museum of London of a 14-year-old Roman girl that they'd found in Southwark in a third-century grave. And because she was buried with all these really interesting grave goods, two little glass bottles, a copper alloy, I've been trained not to say bronze, a copper alloy key, and an iron and ivory clasp knife in the shape of a leopard. Because her grave goods were so interesting, they sent her bones off to be DNA'd and isotoped. And they found out that she grew up in the southern med. Her mother was of European ancestry, but she grew up in the southern med, maybe North Africa. And that when she was nine, they can tell this by diet and isotopes and stuff, when she was nine, she made the long journey to Londinium and died five years later. And I thought, wow, what's her story? I would love to know her story. And then I thought... I'm a writer of historical fiction. I can write a story. Yeah. So, I'm in fact, in the back of the book, I say, you know, any one of you could write uh, using the same facts, a different story about what mm. her, what might have brought her to Londinium from mm. North Africa or wherever she was. So that's what gave me the idea. And for a long time, I was trying to figure out how to get into this story of the girl with the ivory knife. And I was thinking of doing one chapter from her point of view and then one chapter from a modern archaeologist's point of view, say someone at MOLA mm. who was studying her and do a kind of parallel lives. And then, but my editor didn't like that idea and it wasn't really working. And she wanted me to do it just like all my other books set in the past from the point of view of someone in the past. But I've written over 30 books set in the ancient Roman world from the point of view of someone in the past with no time slip or reference to modern times. And I thought, I need something different. And then when I came here to the opening, two things sparked the idea of time travel. One was going down those stairs. You go down to the back. But the other was meeting Ben Aronovich, who wrote the Rivers of London series, which okay. is like if Harry Potter were um, CSI, a kind of wizard policeman in London. And he... I'd never met him before, and someone introduced him. And I said, oh, I've heard of your series, you know, Rivers of London, sounds really good. Hadn't read it because it's fantasy, I'm not that into fantasy. And then a few days later, I went to meet um, a Latin teacher teaching some PG, PGCE Latin people, students, um, doing a seminar at the Museum of London, and I went along to meet them. And as thanks, he said, oh, I've got a book for you. And he gave me Ben Aronovich's book hmm. within a few days of me meeting him. That's what I call serendipity. So I read the book, and there's a scene near the end where our CSI cop is chasing a ghostly perp and as he's chasing him, they go back through time. Mm. And they go back through Victorian London, through Georgian London, and then to Roman London, and they're crossing London Bridge in Roman time. And suddenly it's not there, because they're going back all the time, and the, it was before the bridge was built. And I thought, time travel. I've resisted it for many years, but I'm going to do time travel. <laughs> and the beauty of time travel is you can have a modern kid going back to time and referencing things relating them to things he knows about. Yeah. So instead of, oh, they're wearing they're wearing big, long T-shirts. No, wait, those are tunics. Or he's got a Smurf hat. Oh, no, that's a Mithras cap. So it helps kids visualize the period. Mm. Kind of gives them anchors. Gives yeah. them anchors, yeah. exactly. And so I wrote, even though my editor had said, no, I don't want any modern stuff intruding, I wrote the first chapter or two in a synopsis, and she loved it. They all loved it. So 
and I loved writing it. It was so great to finally be able to put in 21st century things <laughs> and 20th century things like, you know, my favorite food, my favorite pop groups, yeah. and my favorite references to Star Wars and stuff. So, was my favorite film until recently. It's been overtaken by Wall-E, which I Wall-E. think is okay. genius. But I still love Star Wars yeah. to death. Well, one thing I was going to ask there quickly was because also as well, all right, I'm thinking you're quite a fan of Star Trek. Yeah, Star Trek, do, Star Wars, all those you, things. Yeah. So when you were doing time travel, did you think of anything like the Guardian of Forever episode? That's the thing that jumped into my mind. But Kirk and Spock go back into like is it like 1950s New York? Or something? Yeah, yeah, of yeah. course, of course, of course. And yeah. my favorite Star Trek film, which is Star Trek Four, where they go back to hippie San Francisco, yeah. where I grew up. <laughs> so great! Everybody remember where we parked? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, uh, no. I don't, I'm not from outer space. I'm from Iowa. I only work in outer space. <laughs> and then there's another great line. There's a great one where Spock gives the Vulcan um, death pinch or a sleeping pinch to the guy with the big boom box yeah. on, on the, on the uh, bus. Oh, it's so great. I yeah. love that one. But no, there were, I'm, I have a scene where we talk about beaming into, if you don't get the portal coordinates just right, you could beam into a wall, right? Yeah. So beam me up, Scotty. I've got to reference that. And of course, the aspect, there are three rules of time travel. Naked you go and naked you must return. Drink, don't eat, and don't as little interaction as possible. And of course, the naked one, I just thought, partly, I guess I was subliminally thinking of Terminator, right? Yeah, yeah. Because he goes back naked. But it makes sense that you don't take anything, you can't take anything and bring anything back. And also, an author has to make things hard for your hero. <laughs> you yeah. But then, I also saw this great movie called Downsizing with, um, I think it was Ben Stiller, about they shrink people down so that they can live a much more affluent life in a tiny, tiny little town. And one of the rules of that movie was if you have fillings, your head will explode as you shrink. So that's where I got the idea of you can't have anything inorganic in your body either. You can't have fillings. So I'm like a magpie. get little good ideas from here and there, all sorts of places. My favorite bit of the book where I'm up to so far was that you... Um, when the main character's back in Roman London and he tries to dance and he talks about doing the Charleston. Like you the say, Carlton. the Carlton. It's not the Charleston, it's the Carlton. It's and then the it's Carlton. the Fresh Prince of Bel Air. Yeah, dance. it's the French Prince. <laughs> apparently, it's super popular. And then there's the flossy dance, the backpack dance. Oh, okay. But that, my editor deemed that too contemporary, that it would soon be out of date. Yeah, I'm but surprised that the Fresh Prince of LA wasn't new. I mean, no, because that, it's that. gone into icon status yeah. now. It's gone into icon was, uh, status. But that's something I grew up on. I was like, oh, wow. <laughs> but it's super popular. And then, and then uh, yeah, that he sings a song to the tune of I'm the King of the Swingers as well, yeah. which I wasn't allowed to use any of the lyrics of for copyright. Oh, really? Purposes. You don't actually yeah. even write down? No, no I had to oh, put oh, a bit of it, I think... And then he uses green sleeves, which is... Green sleeves might even be in copyright. I don't know. It's not um, no, so I had huge fun playing with ideas like that. Um, and then about time travel. Oh, yeah, then I referenced this great um, Ray Bradbury short story, um, The Sound of Thunder, hmm. where um, they often talk about the butterfly effect, but it's a misnomer because it's not the idea that a butterfly flaps its wings in South America and there's a storm here. It's a different butterfly. It's... His short story, they go back to hunt T-Rex, and they've chosen a T-Rex they know is going to die. And they have, they have to stay, the time travelers have to stay on a path, and if they stray off the path, anything could happen. And one of them gets panicked and has to go back, and they say, well, don't start, get off the path. And he squashes a butterfly on his way back to the time pod. Mm. And when he gets back to the present, there's a different president. 
So I make a fun joke in my book. You know, President Trump still Trump yeah. is still president. So you know, squash as many butterflies as you like. But um, so yeah, I have a, and I'm doing a sequel to that book okay. now, um, where he goes back to the time of Socrates, the oh. death of Socrates, and I reference another great short story, time travel short story called "Let's Go to Golgotha," which not many people have heard of, and in that one. They got all these time travel tourists going back to witness the crucifixion of mm. Christ, and to blend into the crowd, they all have to say "Crucify him!" when um, Pilate gives them the choice to crucify Barabbas or um, Christ. And it turns out later they're all tourists, and so we crucify oh, Christ. Okay. Wow. So clever, so clever. Mm. So I love the idea of time travel, but time travel is actually quite—it's quite depressing too, in many ways. Yeah. Because it's against nature, and when you come back to the present, all the people you were interacting with are long dead. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> you seen the new Avengers film, the Marvel film? Of course, I've seen it. Yeah. I saw what it the day it the... came out. Oh, I saw, I saw it at midnight as well. Oh, yeah, not midnight. I, in fact, I should have seen it at midnight. <laughs> I went to Leicester Square hoping for a really good experience, okay. and I went to like the 12 o'clock on Thursday instead of like Thursday midnight or Wednesday, Thursday midnight. Mm. I went Thursday lunchtime, and I thought I'm going to go to a big screening. Leicester Square, it's going to be a good energy. They just sat quietly. It's a London crowd. There were a few little applause and a few oh, whoops. Right. So I should have gone to the big yeah. you know, dresser. What do you think of time traveling that way? Yeah, that's messed up. That's <laughs> totally bogus. They totally cheated. I just like the Ant-Man reaction to stuff where he's just like, just like in Die Hard. And like, Die Hard's not a travel, travel film. Um, Back to the Future. Yeah. Yeah. Is your entire plan based on Back to the Future? <laughs> One but, thing. One no, thing. It's to- that was totally true. Yeah. And we can't talk about it because spoilers. Yeah. Oh, I don't know. They said the Russo who directed it said, I think it was last Monday, was the kind of cut-off point for spoilers. After that, you're allowed to talk about it more openly. Okay, but all I'm saying is if they did that whole plan, someone's daughter should not still be alive. Someone's little daughter should not still be alive mm. if they're going back. But I guess the whole thing is that the past is now your future, right? Yeah. Oh, it's great. Creates like different realities. Yeah, creates different. Yeah, yeah. yeah it's getting, it's getting, getting complicated. <laughs> one, one, one thing I had to ask was that in your new book there is a teacher called Mrs. Eckhart. Uh-huh. Did you get the name from Hella Eckhart? I did. Okay. <laughs> it's, yes, it's a double tribute to Hella Eckhart, who's I'm a huge fan of her. And um, by the way. Um, all A-level students listening to this, they're doing digs in Silchester mm. this summer I for went to Silchester as a week, and mm. you get bursary, and they pay for your three meals a day and your instruction, but you have to bring your own tent. So yes, it's partly to Hella Eckhart, but partly also to my fourth grade teacher, Mrs. Eckhart. Oh, really? So oh, it's a okay, double nice. tribute, yeah, mm. but primarily to Hella. In fact, every name, also his Latin teacher is called Mrs. Forte, Yeah. and Helen Forte writes the Minimus books, the the mouse. illustrates yeah, yeah. the mouse books. And then also Miss Ms. Akonma is the head teacher, and that's one of my doctors. So Mr. Akon, Dr. Akonma. So I, I like using all the names. It's fun. Little. Do you take a lot of inspiration for your characters from people that you meet? Or are they yeah, you know? yeah, I do. I do. Um, although, basically, they're all facets of myself digging down deep into my own psyche and stuff. And Alex is probably far too, you know, savvy mm. and culturally aware for most 12-year-old kids. But... Um, I had fun doing it. It's good. It's good fun. Yeah. So, as I always do in podcast, take me back then to the start of how did you get into classic? Well, yeah, oh, yeah, that wasn't intended to be a pun as well. Uh, take me back. Uh, yeah. So, how did you how did you get into the Roman world? Like, what, what was the a what book? Was the, the a book. 
a book. I was 18 on my gap year, 19 on my gap year rather, and I was in Switzerland hoping to go to Greece on a Eurail card, hoping to earn lots of money, ski during the day, earn lots of money. It was so expensive in Switzerland that I didn't have money to do anything. And I was like in a cabin in this chalet at winter with nothing to do. My parents sent me two books, The Iliad in Translation by Evie Rue, The Penguin Aversion, and The Last of the Wine by Mary Renault. Have you ever read it? No. Nope. That book changed my life. Okay. It's set in classical Greece in the time of Xenophon, Plato, and um, and uh, Socrates. But it's got it's follows two fictional young men called Alexius and Lysis, and they do all sorts of things like they fight the Spartans and they compete in the Olympic Games and they of course they're disciples of Socrates and everything and they meet Plato. Um, but that book was like a lightning bolt. It just blew me away. And it was like a time machine taking me back to ancient Rome, ancient Greece, rather. And um, when I went back to Berkeley, UC Berkeley, I signed up to study ancient Greek because I wanted to see if it was what it was like. And I'd been trying various things, and I either liked them or wasn't good at them or wasn't good at them and liked them or whatever. But ancient Greek was like solving a giant code or puzzle and I loved it because when you solve it you're suddenly in the head of someone who lived two and a half thousand years ago two thousand years ago and they said oh if you do if you like Greek you have to do Latin we call it classics and I'm okay I'll do classics and I'm Latin boring but then later on I realized Latin is much cooler than Greek because the Romans are much more like us I think I think we have a lot more in common with the Romans I know a lot of people would disagree but uh, and I love I love Virgil um, I love Ovid and Horace. I think, although Virgil's my favorite, I think the, my go-to guy for ideas is Marshall, okay. who, if he were alive today, would be writing a Roman version of Sex in the City. <laughs> he's just a total gossip. Yeah. And he's really, he was really a despicable character. He was a misogynistic anti-Semite and a pederast, many of them were. But I love his little epigrams. They're just fantastic. And he, he, like Colette, writes about the tasteable, smellable, feelable, touchable world of ancient Rome. He tells the gifts you give at Saturnalia. And he describes, you know, things like a well-hung guy walks into the public baths and everyone applauds and stuff like that. And just all these wonderful yeah. little gossipy, bitchy things. It's so great. How did you... Uh, so then how did you make the jump? So you, you studied classics... So oh, you yeah. said you were, you were a teacher as well. So Well, so I studied classic at Berkeley. Um, was wandering the halls one Sunday, as nerds do. Saw a poster for Marshall Scholarships to study in Britain. Long story short, got one by the skin of my teeth because someone else canceled and I like was on the waiting list and then someone else took an even better scholarship and I just squeezed in. Went to Newnham College, read classics. But I'm not an academic and I realized then that Academia was a bit dry for me. Mm. So I kind of retired hurt for a few years. <laughs> my tail between my legs. Had a son, started helping out at his school, doing art. And they said, oh, you're a natural teacher. Can you teach any other subjects? And I said, well, can I do a Latin taster? And I did that, and I recaptured my love of, of the ancient world. And I used to like, we used to have banquets where we'd recline on the floor and oh, nice. I'd say, who wants to be a slave? I do, I do, miss. And <laughs> so we'd have to think of what would be Roman food. Like we'd bring flatbread and feta cheese and halva and grapes and figs and we'd have watered down apple juice or grape juice as wine. And then I would show every Christmas we'd have a Latin party and I'd show a funny thing happened on the way to the forum, mm. which is really great. My favorite movie about ancient Rome, probably the most accurate too. 
but teaching was exhausting, and I thought I'd love to teach, but um, keep teaching, but I'm it's too tiring, and I've always thought I wanted to be a writer. I should probably start. So I started writing, and it, I actually my first few books were rubbish because I didn't know how to plot. And then I came across um, a story structure course by a Hollywood screenwriter, and because I love movies more than anything, I thought this is what I need to do. I need to plot my book like a film, and then that'll be it. And so I did that. I took a book I'd written, rewrote it as a film script using his principles, and that taught me story structure. Okay. And at first, I just used his story structure as a kind of tracks down to run my the engine of my ideas. But later on, 20 years on now, I realized that story structure is probably the most important thing because it's in our DNA. And um, In fact, you can reach so many people through a story, so many more people through fiction than you can through even the best essay, can't you? Mm, yeah. Just look at Game of Thrones and the Marvel Universe and the Harry Potter Universe and the Star Wars Universe. And I mean, they're almost religions now, aren't they? Yeah, yeah. So, yeah. So I didn't look back. I, I wrote, um, and then I was, um, my sisters, I was writing a screenplay about a slave girl in ancient Pompeii, and my sister said, I went back home to visit in California, California, California in 1999. My sister said, why don't you write a book for kids set in Pompeii? And that was my light bulb moment. I thought of Nancy Drew, an American girl detective, fiction, fictional detective in books, teenage detective, and I thought Nancy Drew in ancient Rome, and that I thought, I'd have to make her younger than a teenager, you know, because she'd be married otherwise if she was 15 or 18. And I thought I can do a whole series of books, and each mystery will reveal an aspect of the ancient world. And I'll, because I want more than girls to read it, I'll give her some friends who are boys. And so that's how it all came together. Okay. It's interesting as well. I think there's, there's probably something to say for the, with kids' books as well. When a kid reads a book like that, the sense they get going away from it of not just having enjoyed the story but feeling they've learned something from yeah, it as well. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. I, I was a big fan growing up of horrible histories just because I loved yeah. the idea of just getting the facts out of them as yeah, well. Yeah, yeah. I think that's that has a big impact on, on kids as well. Just, yeah. I mean, just reading the Anuva because of all the Latin phrases in it yeah. and the, the bits and pieces in there about life. I found it quite interesting why you present her Roman London that because you because the kid goes back and it's like oh it's not like it is in the movies yeah and the way the other kids kind of told him what it's going to be like and he's kind of actually lying and it's yeah it's, have you it, have you got to that bit yet yeah 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 yeah, so, yeah. but I, I, the bogus I, Roman handshake yeah, yeah, yeah I'm on a one woman mission to strike stamp that out <laughs> and so they, that's the, the bogus this is this where you do this we, we and they four, used it in Game of Thrones yeah. George R R Martin I'm disappointed in yeah. you. I um, guess it's okay in Game of Thrones, but really, it's so bogus. Yeah, it's so a, bogus. The but I, I just quite like that idea of um, going back and being like, "Oh, Roman London's not quite what I thought it was," because so many people have the idea in their mind of the Roman world as being quite um, clean and civilized. Clean, yeah, clean. In and fact, civilized. if you'd come here a, few, a month or two ago, the previous um, art they had on the walls here of the Mithraeum was a kind of. Um, neoclassical black and white stately buildings with columns and urns and very clean and his idea of what Roman London would have looked like and my idea is that in my Roman mysteries set in the Mediterranean and Italy especially based in Ostia the seaport of Rome that's a world I'd want to go back to but my time travel diaries, I had the idea that Londinium, third century Londinium, you do not want to go back to to this mm. place. It's muddy, it's dirty, it's vermin-ridden, it's full of disease. People had parasites, everybody had bad teeth, everybody had 
bone disease, you know, stress and strain. And there was no stone, so the roads would be gra- mud studded with gravel. There'd be open sewage and stuff like yeah. that. And I want to bring that home that, um, and the message of the book when you get to the end, you'll see is essentially we are so lucky to be living now, you know, mm-hmm. in the West for Alex is very, you know, he thinks he, he lives in a little two bedroom flat with a, with a shared bedroom with his grand and he thinks he's got it rough but when he comes back he realizes how mm. how blessed he is mm-hmm. if you could travel to any point in time where would it be well um that's a great question and i always think i'd love to go back to um to see antony and cleopatra in mm-hmm. their rooms in alexandria and i'd be in an invisible bubble so no one could see me and i wouldn't give them my germs and arrows couldn't touch me but I'd love to see them not just making love, but interacting, you know, how hot-tempered, how, what did they look like? How did they mm. touch each other? How did they, what did they dress like? But I don't have enough confidence to write about that. Whereas, because we have so many great primary sources about the death of Socrates, I do have confidence to write my version of that. Okay. So, that's where he's going back next, is to witness the death of Socrates. Mm. Hemlock. Mm-hmm. Is that, is he going to go back to Greece then and go through a time... Yeah, he's going back to. He has. You have to put the portal where you're yeah. going. So he has to go to Athens. Have you ever seen Red Dwarf? Yeah. Uh, not so much. No. A, what, anyone that's listening that hasn't ever seen Red Dwarf sci-fi series, comedy series, it's been out for years. I know ago. what it is, but uh, I, yeah, haven't, yeah. I haven't seen it. But, um, is it, there when we go? They go to Athens? No, there's, a, there's just there was a great there was a great cliff on it about the laws of time travel where they get a time machine. But they're stuck in like deep space, so they pick a year to go back to like 1543 or something. So they go back to medieval times. Yeah. But they go back in time, and they're just still in deep space. And oh, like, they're, oh, they're like, very and they're like, they're all sat there, and they're like, nothing's changed. And then the robot guy Crichton's like, yes, but we're in medieval times. And they're like, but medieval <laughs> times are deep space. So like, nothing's actually very doesn't clever. actually really make very any difference clever. to them. And but I think yeah. there's another. I think. I think someone mentioned Philip Pullman has that idea. Oh, okay. But I, I sometimes get I think I have an original idea. And then I discovered that, like in one of my books, I had uh, I had a girl fight, you know, you fight like a girl, and I thought I made that up, and then I was watching an old episode of Buffy the Vampire Slayer, and there's that line, you fight like a girl. Well, yeah, that was something I was going to ask. Yeah. You were an extra in a Buffy Yeah, the I was an extra in <laughs> Buffy the Vampire Slayer. What episode was it? It was at the open season opener of season four, The Freshman. Oh, and okay. I'm in an establishing shot, my husband and I and my sister-in-law, we're in a high crane establishing shot on the UCLA campus, which is supposed to be Sunnydale. Yeah. But we're not just in that episode. We're also in Hush, the probably the best episode oh. ever. And we're in Something Blue, where Spike and Buffy are. Oh, okay. And I think we're in Pangs as well, the Thanksgiving episode. So we're in four iconic Buffy wow. episodes. Yeah. And I met Joss Whedon a few days ago. Oh, really? In fact, I've met him before, but he was at Natalie Haynes's launch for her new book, um, A Thousand Ships, about the Trojan War told from the point of view of the women. And he's a friend, he's a pal of Natalie Haynes. She has really cool friends. So, so I was a total geek girl and went up and was totally uncool and said, can I have a selfie with you? So, oh. And I told him the story about being an extra. And I do think he's a genius, though. I think he's one of, he inspired a lot of my aspects of my writing as well. The fact that you can have um, a main character but different points of view like there's a great episode called the Zeppo from Xander's point of view. Yes, and I in the background, that, yeah. Buffy's killing, like she's saving the universe, and he's just fighting his own personal mm. demon. But it's told from his point of view. That's mm. such a great idea. Mm. I love Buffy and Angel as well. Yeah, great series. Buffy, Buffy great. Do you think they should do a remake? 
No. Oh, no. Leave, leave well enough alone. Mm. That never... Well, it does go well sometimes. The remake of Ben-Hur was great. I think the... I've not seen the remake. Well, the one with Charlton Heston, I mean. Not the one since then. Oh, But the okay. Charlton Heston one is, in fact, a remake of a silent version of um, Ben-Hur. I think that's a great film, and they shouldn't have bothered remaking. I suppose you could, uh, yeah. I mean, Gladiator is a remake as well. So. If it's a masterpiece, don't fool with it. If it's mm. kind of slightly off, it could have been better, then you can remake it. But don't remake a masterpiece, in my opinion. So what's your, is your favorite film Star Wars as well? Yeah. Mm. I don't know. Marvel's starting to maybe overtake Star Wars. Mm. But no, Star Wars will always be... Mm. I know Star Wars is just big place in my heart. It's, it's so great because I so great, yeah. I first saw Star Wars when they did the special editions in uh-huh. the late nineties. Yeah. So the first time I saw the original trilogy was in the cinema, yeah. and I think it's one of those things that I think you see it as a kid in the yeah. cinema for the first time yeah. that doesn't leave you. It's yeah. just such a yeah. an experience. Like I say things like that. Like if you watch Star Wars now and you watch it on TV at home, it's still kind of, it's still good, I rem- but it's not I still the same remember. I was, I was 23, you can all figure out how old I am, when it came out in 1977, and I still remember the, the, the first spaceship going over, and then the big one with the Stolby sound. It was amazing, and yeah. just the whole world was just fantastic. And I love deserts. I've got a bit of an ascetic in me, a bit <laughs> of an ascetic monk. I love deserts. Um, maybe because I grew up in Bakersfield, which is a dry, deserty part of California. Okay. But I love um, I love the Force Awakens as well because yeah. of the desert scenes. And I think Ray, like, Ray's a great character. Yeah. Do you like the Last Jedi? No, really, oh. not really. No, I I, I, I liked it. I, mean, I seem to be in a minority. <laughs> I mean, in a way, some of the some of the creepy, uncanny valley resurrections actually started to make me not like the whole. It started to show me the cracks of the whole franchise. So. But I thought The Force Awakens was great. Mm. I love Ray. Anyway, <laughs> we've got it slightly off topic here. <laughs> that's, that's, that's the intention, really. Is, are you looking forward to Rise of Skywalker? Yes, yeah. I still live in hope, and I was so looking forward to hands to Solo. I was so mm. looking forward to that. I was disappointed with that. And I, I remember looking forward to Gladiator and being horribly disappointed. Oh, really? Because it doesn't show the world as it was. There are a few scenes in the ones in North Africa and the market where the sun's filtering through, you know, the Ridley mm. Scott's sunbeams and the dust effect and the colors and the ethnic, different ethnicity. That, I felt, was real. But then when they get to Rome, it looks like Lenny Riefenstahl's Nazi Germany propaganda films, mm. which is probably what he intended. It's all kind of drained of color and... And then he fights a tiger, which is ridiculous. Huh. No gladiators fought a tiger. Beast you, fighters fought beasts, fought what, tigers. What do you think of the upcoming Rotten Romans film? Are you looking forward to that? The, the um, Horrible Histories film? No, Horrible Histories. I'm kind of like... Oh, really? I'm making cat paws there. <laughs> little jealous cat paws. It'll probably be fun. What about Britannia? Do you like Britannia? I've not actually seen it. That's, you haven't seen Britannia? No, it's bonkers. No. It's quite fun. It's like... And I often think... I've written actually a four books set in Roman Britain, and my idea was kind of like the Druids were like hippies on, you know, hallucinogens on LSD <laughs> and stuff like that, and with potions that could make you fly like a bird. So I love the idea that they've got a Donovan who was a kind of hippie, psychedelic folk songwriter in the 60s, that I've got a Donovan song, Hurdy Gurdy Man, is their uh, theme song, but it's really fun. Bit wacky though. Because your uh, Roman mystery series was made for TV as well. They did a TV version, yeah, but it ha- it was plagued by bad luck. Yeah. Oh. The second episode was about to air when Madeline McCann was kidnapped. Oh. And the it, second episode was about kids being kidnapped by pirates, so um, they just whipped it off the air and it never recovered after that. Um, yeah, but it's fun to show, to give kids a kind of idea of mm. what the Roman world would have looked like. 
And the first season was filmed in Tunisia at Empire Studios. Amazing. Kind of a weird, slightly distorted Rome with with temples here and statues here that are slightly out of proportion and bear no relation to where they're placed. So it's kind of mm-hmm. like a nightmare world of Rome. And then the second season was in Boyana Studios, Bulgaria, where they filmed Plebs. Okay. And that was those Bulgarian um, work guys could work guys <laughs> set designers could mm. put together a Roman room in one day and it was amazing you know? wow. it was really fun. but one funny thing was scale I had like a water clock in, and I sent them a photo of a water clock and the water clock should probably be about a foot tall they did one that was like a man sized water clock and they also have frescoes that take the whole wall whereas if you see them in Pompeii Herculaneum they're again about the, a cubit long of the size of your forearm mm. So scale is a funny thing. One last one I'll ask about opinion-wise. Rome. What do you think of TV series Rome? Okay, Rome, again, I was really disappointed in that. Um, I, it's again, one of those things where I, I liked it. I don't, I'm not a big fan of Kieran Hines or Julius Caesar. That's not how I, I imagine Caesar. They shouldn't cast British. They should cast Italians to play Romans, mm. I think. Because we always do it too British, you know. It's, oh, dear, the mountains erupting. I'd better take a bath. And then go. <laughs> um it was the casting I objected to. I think Stanley Tucci should play Caesar. He was bald and quite virile, or maybe someone like Mark Strong would be a better Caesar. Mm. Um, but what really disappointed me was they messed up the story. They had great characters. They could have just used real historical characters, like Fulvia, Mark Antony's wife. And, and the costumes were ridiculous. But what I loved were the sets and the really messy, colorful look of ancient Rome. And I remember reading interviews with the set designers, and they said they imagined Rome like Calcutta, really colorful and hot and messy and dirty. And that's what I think Rome would have been like with the dyer's market, you know, skeins of freshly dyed wool hanging and dripping and altars with slightly half-rotted food and scavenging packs of dogs around and chickens running wild. My husband and I have a thing where... If we're watching historical fiction, there are free-range chickens. We go chickens, you know, that's a good thing. It gets an extra point if it's got free-range chickens and stuff like that. Because there's so many aspects we just forget about. (laughs) The worst one is clean teeth, perfect skin, coiffed hair. You know, give them a few pockmarks and stuff. Mm. That's where Game of Thrones comes through. I wrote a blog called Why Game of Thrones is the Best Historical Fiction Being Written. So many people hate the last series at the moment, it seems. Well, I'm talking about the first few, the first few, where anyone can die. I'm I'm, I'm so enjoying it. Well, they've got to tie it up. They've got to do the writerly thing and tie it up, and they've got to keep you guessing. It it feels a little bit like that. It's one of those things where I don't think... I think it's become so big that there was no way that... Lots of people yeah, are going to be happy with it. Yeah, a few people that they cannot kill. I still think they might have a, they might pop someone on the throne who we're not expecting. Yeah. Have you got a? You want to? You want to? You want to? You want to? I don't know about who. Fifty p on who do you think is going to end up on the Iron I, I Throne? I don't know if I know who's going to be. My theory at the moment is Arya is going to kill Daenerys as well. Because oh. they kept. Because the whole thing about her with green eye, the green yeah. eyes, blue eyes things. Yeah. The last episode, they seem to zoom in on Daenerys' face a bunch of times. Oh. But I, I swear she's not supposed to have green eyes. Did you see maybe. the Starbucks cup? Yes. Yeah. yeah, yeah. <laughs> I'm, I'm still. Part of me thinks they did that on purpose. It's like quite somebody, cool, isn't somebody it? left it, it in there just in. to it's, kind of yeah, like, oh my gosh, yeah, kind of annoy yeah. people a little yeah, bit yeah, because yeah. it seems like the sort yeah. of thing they wouldn't miss. But yeah. it was, yeah, yeah. yeah. I, I found it quite funny. A lot of people would get pretty angry about those sort of things, but yeah. willing suspension of disbelief. 
So I'm just trying to think who I think might end up on the Iron Thread. It would be really good if it was someone like Sam, wouldn't it? <laughs> <laughs> Who's a nice scholar ending up on the thread. I I always thought I always thought originally Daenerys said she was going to um, get her one of her dragons to burn it and melt it down to slag heap, yeah. get rid of it. Yeah. But now she seems intent on sitting there. Doesn't yeah, she? it's interesting. I mean, Tyrion's talked before about was it breaking the will and mm. doing things differently. Mm. In the last episode, him and Varys were having conversations. So let's just go on record. I'm saying Sam is going to end up on the Iron Throne. Who do you who do you say? Just go for it. I think I can get rid of it. I think they'll just get rid of the Iron Throne at the end. Okay. I, think okay. I think it's like what you just said. Okay, that's they'll, great. They'll I like that. Okay. They'll, they'll break if the will. If they do that, I'll be kicking myself. <laughs> <laughs> So, okay, who's going to end up on it right before they melt it into a slag heap by saying Dracaris? In other words, who is going to be the ultimate winner? Who's going to come out on top? I don't, that's the thing. I don't, I don't think anyone's <laughs> going to win it. I think it's going to. Be, I reckon it'll be a very depressing ending. Okay. I think they'll. I think. I think it's going to be one of those things where. I don't know it's Arya, a kind of bittersweet. I think yeah. they'll. I think they'll conspire to kill mm. Daenerys. I mm. think they'll kill Cersei, mm. and they'll conspire to kill Daenerys. Mm. And then Jon Snow will reject becoming king anyway, mm. and do mm. something ridiculously mm. honourable. Will probably go out of blaze of glory, mm. and then Maybe there'll just be none of them. Dad, yeah. yeah, there'll be none of them left, and then yeah. you just have Sansa as like basically queen yeah. of the north. It'll be a bit like the Godfather Two, the ending where Michael has finally embraced the darkness, yeah, yeah, yeah. and he's lying to Kate, you know, his wife. Only two weeks ago. Only two weeks, two weeks ago. ago. Well, Hard at the time of recording. By the time Hard this comes out, it might yeah. be done. Hard to <laughs> so, just to, to to write it off then, um, what what would be your advice then for somebody who might be thinking about following a similar sort of path to yourself in terms of, you know, writing fiction in the in the ancient world or, or historical fiction? I would say go for it um, because. You, you will have another job. Ideally, you'll have another job before you make your life as a full-time writer. So be an archaeologist, be a teacher, be an artist, be even um, my friend Simon Elliott was a lobbyist, and, that, and then he did a degree at the University of Kent, Canterbury, University of Kent, and he's now writing tons of books, uh, even at an advanced stage. And I came to it at an advanced stage. I, start, I wrote my first book when I was in my 40s, so... I had, you know, I had my kid and done the whole thing, but I would say go for it because there is a deep hunger for stories, well-written stories, um, that's never going to be exhausted. It's the industry of the future. In fact, it's the one thing AI will not take over, I believe. Mm-hmm. And um, do you know Yuval Harari, *Sapiens*? Yes. Oh, such a good book. Yeah. I, agree. I love that book. And his whole idea that what made Homo sapiens, the dominant species, a little hairless naked ape. What made us the dominant species is our ability to tell stories and buy into them. And his great quote is, um, there's no way you can um, promise, um, a chi- get a chimpanzee to give you his banana and promise him unlimited bananas in monkey heaven in return. Mm. But you can do that with a person. So I would say stories, learn the craft of writing. It's a craft. Learn your your field, you know, get in depth in your field, you're the expert put the imagination and the facts together and write a story, it's you could do that, Mm. you could do that Mm. everyone could do that and interestingly enough, in August I've got a book coming out called How to Write a Great Story, Okay, just just by the by and it's for kids 8 to 80, so it's got all my best tips and many of them from screenwriters and Hollywood plot structure trope tropes and tricks and tips like save the cat and um, 
the cup of cocoa and ninja um, description, stuff like that. All these little tricks, like one page trick. Okay. So, nice. so yeah. So all you archaeologists out there, keep up the archaeology. Get my book. Write a bestseller. <laughs> and I'll go. <laughs> <laughs> so if you want to find you, they can find you on Twitter. Yeah, I'm on Caroline Lawrence, no E at the end. Mm-hmm. And um, they can just Google me and find me too. Yeah. And I'm having a new website done, so hopefully it should be up soon, carolinelawrence.com. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And go out and buy books. Yeah, I got by the books, and I hope to come back to talk maybe in a future episode. I'd love to, when you've read my bit about the Mithras, mm-hmm. what goes on in the Mithraeum, I'd love to come back and talk a bit more about Mithras and how I think Roger Beck is the best Mithraist. Oh, yeah. okay. Well, yeah. there's a, um, his star map. His, yeah, his star map. Is it a driving simulator of the yeah, universe? Yeah, but what Alex, to. no, I won't tell you. Spoiler alert, Alex has a revelation. But I also love Roger Beck because he's all about the apotropaic. He's about, he wrote an article called Mithraism as an apotropaic amulet. Because they're not killing the bull, they're just harming it. You don't kill a bull by stabbing him in the shoulder. You kill him by knocking him on the back of the head and cutting his throat. So I'm with Roger Beck. Okay. Well, I'm not going to argue with the great guy. Anyway, so will you have me back in a few months? Oh, yeah, absolutely. Brilliant, right. Thank you very much for doing this. Thank you. Thank you.